Coming up next, the booketing reads East of Eden. It's the decade's most daring novel. Starring James Dean as Cal. (laughs) (laughs) Play it back. How does it sound? There's our intro right there. Welcome to the Bookening. <laughs> My name is Nathan Alberson. I'm your humble and obedient host. I'm here with Jake Menzel, Pastor Jacob Menzel, the pastor who's a master of reading East of Eden. Or is he? We'll find out. <laughs> and also, who is our other gentleman here today? Brandon Chastine. Brandon Chastine, the PH, what are you? PhD ABD. ABD. PhD ABD. It's got extra letters for failure. <laughs> <laughs> ABD stands for failure. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about East of Eden, a book that is billed as being first published in 1952. Okay, here we go. It's billed as. <laughs> it's billed as <laughs> this book was first published in 1952. You know what else happened in 1952? <laughs> I don't know, the uh, industrial <laughs> complex, I think, yeah. started around there. We in the middle of the Korean War. The Korean War. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about East of Eden, which is a bell built as a powerful and vastly ambitious novel that is at once a family saga. Sega? Saga? Sega, yeah. Sega. Sega. Sega from Genesis. And a modern retelling of the book of Genesis. But first, I thought maybe we should tie up a few loose ends from our last episode. So, Brandon, you said that Cervantes was the first of the novels. <laughs> do you stand by that assertion, sir? I do. <laughs> I'm not easily moved. <laughs> okay. I also stand by my assertion that Jane Austen is not a feminism. <laughs> well, she wasn't. She wasn't. No. <laughs> That's true. She was a woman. It's inarguable. She's a flesh and blood woman. She was not a crappy strain of thought. Yeah. Last month, we released our Pride and Prejudice reviews to, to much acclaim, our, our podcast episodes. And uh, well, we forgot to mention something, which actually did happen last month, as I'm sure you guys recall, which is that Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, the movie, came out. And I don't think we mentioned Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and I thought people would probably want to hear about Pride and Prejudice. So, Jake, how do you feel about Pride and Prejudice and Zombies? I feel nothing. You feel nothing? I feel You mean just in general or about Pride and Prejudice and Zombies? About Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Brandon? I feel nothing except I I hate it. (laughs) I really hate it. You feel nothing except (laughs) I see Strong hatred. (laughs) I mean... It's kind of a funny joke when the book came out originally. A funny joke? I mean, it's a funny title. It is a funny title. That's about all you can give it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I've actually got three Pride and Prejudice. One thing that we didn't talk about that I thought maybe people would like to hear is there's, there's many different Pride and Prejudice uh, knockoffs that have come out. So I'm going to give you guys a choice. 
If you had to choose just one, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, Death Comes to Pemberley, The Murder Mystery. <laughs> that may be worse. <laughs> or Mr. Darcy Takes a Wife, Pride and Prejudice Continues. If you had to bring one of those to a desert island <laughs> to be tortured by. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the zombies, man, every time. I don't know. I haven't. I have no idea what the other two are. These just sound like some idiotic wish fulfillment. Well, let me give you. I know we said that Jane Austen fan. was not a feminism, but <laughs> Pride and Prejudice with Zombies contains this dialogue from the trailer. Lizzie says, "I shall never relinquish my sword for a ring," and Jane says, "For the right man, you would." And Lizzie says, "The right man wouldn't ask me to." Oh, yeah. Wow. There you go. So that's Jake. You're a feminist. Yeah, that's what you would like to read. <laughs> Death Comes to Pemberley is described as thus on the IMBD website. Elizabeth and Darcy are preparing for their lavish annual ball at the magnificent Pemberley home. The unannounced arrival of Elizabeth's wayward sister Lydia, however, brings an abrupt and shocking halt to the proceedings when she stumbles out of her chase, screaming that her husband Wickham has been murdered. Darcy leads a search party out to the woodlands where they discover the blood-smeared corpse. Of Wickham? <laughs> Not of Wickham, oh. but his traveling companion. The dramatic and unnerving events of the evening have shattered the peace, both of the Darcys and of Pemberley, and as the family becomes caught up in the ensuing murder investigation, a mysterious web of secrets and deceit will threaten all that the Darcys hold dear. So that's Death Comes to Pemberley, both a novel and a BBC miniseries. The novel by P.D. James, a very esteemed mystery writer, did Children of Men, the book Children of Men, which yeah. the movie was mm. loosely based mm. on the title of. Mr. Darcy Takes a Wife, Pride and Prejudice Continues. This is your third choice. Here is from the book description thing on Amazon. In this rollicking sequel, a wild body and utterly enjoyable novel, the Darcys begin their married life after a spicy wedding night. The couple finds their compatibility extends far beyond their matched wits. As Elizabeth (laughs) settles into her role as mistress of a large household, her sister Jane grapples with her own less passionate marriage to Charles Bingley. Thrown in as well are an illegitimate young man who might just be Darcy's son, a vengeful serving man who plagues the Darcys. According to CurledUp.com, this continuation of Austin's evergreen tale will live long in readers' memories, perhaps even as long as the original. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, I amend what I said earlier about zombies because I think that was like me being an old man, (laughs) like really crusty old, (laughs) just angry at the youth. You were actually shaking your walker (laughs) as you said it. (laughs) I mean, yeah. A zombie tale can be fine and it can be interesting. I don't know what I was saying, but that's awful right there. What you just read is horrible. So if you had to go to a desert island, you would not bring Mr. Darcy Takes a Wife, Pride and Prejudice Continues. No, it's no. pathetic. So which one? I think I would go with Death Comes to Pemberley. That sounds like the most entertaining to me if I had to choose. Gun to my head. Yeah, P.D. James yeah, is a good mystery Yeah, I didn't writer. know that we had P.D. James involved. In... P.D. James probably at least has a pretty good sense of humor about the way that she uses... Jane Austen, I don't know. She does in general, yeah. yeah. I, w- I would choose that. I will say I'm getting distracted by this beating that's going on in the room next to us. Right. <laughs> this tattoo. So, so somebody's taking out <laughs> poor little puppy. Sound like some kind of abusive situation. Maybe two brothers fighting. <laughs> maybe. maybe. <laughs> some guy just went past our window with a hatchet. <laughs> All right. I guess we should talk about East of Eden, the vastly ambitious novel of, uh, shoot, 
vast John Steinbeck proportions. Is that what you're looking for? The powerful and vastly ambitious novel that is once a family Sega and a modern retail. Sega. I'm pretty sure it's Saga. Sega Genesis. <laughs> Sonic the Hedgehog makes an appearance in this novel. <laughs> I hope so. East of Eden is a powerful and vastly ambitious novel that is at once a family saga and a modern retelling of the Book of Genesis. <laughs> My mouth is dry and they won't let us bring in water to this podcast. All right. We've delayed enough. Me and Jake were talking to our friend Joseph who said that every podcast should begin with 15 minutes of total crap so that's what you've got congratulations uh all right pride and or pride and prejudice <laughs> all right <laughs> let's talk about east of eden so how'd you guys feel about uh east of eden are you guys excited about talking about wait a second what's that sound it's the six shooters that are going off that we're all hearing right now Indicating yeah. <laughs> Brandon Chastine's famous, I'm assuming now, since last series. Yeah, I got to live it up to <laughs> it. Yeah, you got to live up to your last popular segment, The Contextual Texan, where Brandon is going to offer a root and tootin historical and literary context for East of Eden this time. Doesn't always have to be about Pride and Prejudice this time. It's about East of Eden. Well, I came prepared to talk about Pride and Prejudice, so <laughs> oh, no. sorry, guys. <laughs> Uh, we gave you five sentences last time. How, did you feel that that was enough? Yeah. Seeing as how he went on for about ten minutes. Yeah, I, think, yeah. I think they were very long <laughs> sentences. I thought the segment was so successful and so beloved now, obviously, yeah. so now that our Pride and Prejudice episodes have come out, <laughs> that I am prepared to give you a sixth sentence. A sixth sentence. If I need it. it. What do I get if I don't need it? If you don't need it, yeah. then you get $10,000. <laughs> wow. <laughs> What happens if I go over? <laughs> you owe Clear Note Church 10,000 push-ups. Wow. Uh, I don't know. If, people can't see me, but that might actually kill me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Confirmed it would actually kill us. <laughs> what would kill us? to have to give you $10,000. All right. The contextual Texan. Yeehaw! Yeehaw! Let's do this. <laughs> Let's do this. Let me get off my thoroughbred here. <laughs> Kick off my spurs. <laughs> Well, last time I started with historical context, but for this novel, I don't really think we need a whole lot of it because um, he provides quite a bit as we go through the novel. So it's set in California right at the end of the 1800s, and then we have the turn of the century goes right up to the World War I, and he talks quite a bit about that in the novel. I think what's um, more useful is to know when he wrote it, which was in the 1950s, where the novel was at the time, and... Also where America was at the time, we were coming right at a period of instability at the beginning with the Korean War. But also he was coming off of a very successful period of political engagement with um, his Dust Bowl trilogy, which was, was – that's what they called it, right? Yes, I believe so. In Dubious Battle and Mice and Men and then Grapes of Wrath. And he came off that fame and here he was. He was going to write his magnum opus and this is how he considered East of Eden. It was his magnum opus. In fact, in fact, I think he told his wife that this book contained all that he had ever learned about writing and his craft was put into this novel. I think even more of more importance is to put this in context with the history of the novel at the time. Mm-hmm. What we were coming at the end of was uh, modernism. And modernism, kind of, it got started because of World War I. And it's 
thinking was that you could have this sort of cold austerity of the author that would have his genius and brilliance write this book that had never been written before. And it would be completely separate from the past. It would be an artifact that would just be brilliant because of the intellect of the author. And people who would be writing in this vein would be Virginia Woolf, would be James Joyce, and would be Steinbeck's, um, I guess, biggest competitor at the period, Ernest Hemingway, who we'll be reading later. And um, so Hemingway, he was known for his stark narrative style, for his clean sentences, for his stories that were both appealing to the uh, public at large, but also to this new class of intelligentsia that was coming out of modernism. Because another thing that happened with modernism is they all ran to Paris right after World War I, these famous authors. And they all wrote to one another, and they all wrote poetry that only they would want to read, and they just despised what they called low, low culture. And they called themselves the lost generation. And Steinbeck was not a part of this at all. And so what you began to have is the rise of the academic art. I think I'm, I've completely lost track of sentences here. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> You're still on the first one. <laughs> I'm still on the first one. So yeah, so you had the rise of the novel and of poetry as both public and mass and what they would consider low, were you going to say popularist? Yeah. Versus um, what they would all, like T.S. Eliot, and this poetry that was meant to not be understood because it was meant to just be admired for its craft. So this is what Hemingway comes out of. This is what the modernists come out of. And somehow Hemingway still became very popular. And in the 40s, if you look at the uh, novels that were the, the most highly uh, rated on the New York Times bestsellers list. It would be Steinbeck and it would be Hemingway. And so there, I, I bring all this up to kind of put a relief against what Steinbeck was doing because I don't think he was, and so here I guess will be the second sentence. He was different than this. What he was, I would argue, would, was in the tradition of more like Melville and uh, the novel Don Quixote. <laughs> To stick, by, to stick by my guns. <laughs> Cervantes. He was the novel Cervantes. Okay. Yeah. He, written by Don Quixote, as we all know. <laughs> and what, this, what was important for this was not so much the cold, creative, internal, uh, psychological stuff that would come out with modernism. You know, because James Joyce, he's famous for a stream of consciousness mm-hmm. crud that he wrote. Um, that's right. Yeehaw! Pow, pow, pow. James, James Joyce, take that. Yeah, crud. <laughs> um, I need you to. I'm guessing watch, we will. I know this is a Texas segment. Yeah. Can we watch the language? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was trying to make me boy. <laughs> so he comes out of this, and what I see it more as is a storyteller tradition, where the narrator is much more of a storyteller. He's a part of the story, he's a part of the creation of the story. So that it's not so much the author as narrator, but this storyteller that's being created as a part of the novel. And so you see this in, you see it in Cervantes. You see it in Moby Dick. You see it in Steinbeck, um, East of Eden. And so there's a quote, one of my favorite essays by a guy named Walter Benjamin um, is about the storyteller. He says, counsel woven into the fabric of real life is wisdom. The art of storytelling is reaching its end because the epic side of truth, wisdom is dying out. And so... He would argue that the modernist novel sort of killed that off. But Steinbeck brings back that tradition with East of Eden and is in an interesting position where he is with the history of the novel, I think, because of that. And so 
getting started in, for, as far as context goes, I think that's one of the most useful things to keep in mind. So another person who would be kind of modernist and doing the same thing would be Faulkner, but not to the same extent. Faulkner's very high modern with his style, because that's the other thing I forgot to mention with high modernism is the style is almost opaque, purposely opaque. So it's only appealing to those who can understand. Again, so is Hemingway it's almost like an, an anomaly in the how do Hemingway and Faulkner, who are such different writers stylistically, both fit into the same tradition? How are they both modernists? Yeah. Um, because both to both of them, the style of the sentence was extremely important, and also the individualism of the author coming through in their writing. When you read Hemingway, you know you're reading Hemingway, right? Because um, it's almost, to me, and we'll talk about this when we read Hemingway, a lot of reading him is about how muscular his prose is and therefore how great he is as an artist and how great his stories are. He was very much convinced of keep cutting things so much that um, the art was, it was like carving or sculpture. And Steinbeck, I think, is very different. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get the sense that he cut as much. He was a storyteller who wasn't so much concerned about the closeness of the craft as he was about the know, bigness, the of, bigness of the craft, yeah. right? And so there's a, there's a big difference between them. Steinbeck is not at all a part of modernism. I, I wouldn't say he would be. Another part of the tradition that he fits into with the novel is uh, the sort of Dickensian sense of place. So if you, when you read Dickens, one of the things he does is London is very real, right? And also Faulkner does this with his the county that he created. I can never say the name, Yachtner, top of power or whatever that is. <laughs> but in Steinbeck, the place is very important to him so that the place almost becomes a part of the story. And that's um, something that died with modernism because modernism was very concerned about internal dialogue of the character. It was very narcissistic in a sense. While these earlier storytelling novels are turned outwards towards events and towards actions that are, big, like you said, bigger than the story. So, um, yeah, I've never put it that way before, but I think that Steinbeck is less of a narcissist than Hemingway. <laughs> I think modernism was appealing to narcissists. And I, I guess the last thing I would mention is uh, it's just really fun to realize where we were at the time with the changing tone of um, literature and how it was growing and expanding. So when he was writing this, just a few years later, C.S. Lewis was writing. He also would have The Lord of the Rings come out. You had Catcher in the Rye. He would have Fahrenheit 451, 1984 had just been published. Faulkner was still writing. O'Connor, Flannery O'Connor, was at her height. Capote, Truman Capote, was also on the rise. You had this Southern Gothic trend that was beginning. You also had the political changes that were coming with what people would call multicultural writers, but that just means African-American writers, black writers. And also you had the beat poets. So On the Road, Hal, and those, uh, those sorts of things were being written at the time, too. So it was quickly escalating into the 60s. And so when you read that chapter in here about how the 1900s was a shift, um, he, this, the 50s really were a shift as well. Things were changing very quickly, escalating. The New Yorker was on the rise. You had a whole change in the way that literature was appreciated. So what was Steinbeck's relationship to modernism? Did he, I mean... How did he feel? I know, for example, East of Eden was not a well-reviewed novel. Mm -hmm. Most of the critics of the time thought it was way over the top and just people, normal people, liked it a lot better than the intelligentsia did. Yeah. You had the rise in this period of the critics, mm -hmm. and these magazines kind of allowed them to come into existence. And they, they did not like East of Eden. And they would tell one another how little they liked it. 
a large part of the reason they didn't like it was because they felt it was two novels in one. So it didn't have that tightness of style that they wanted and that they would get from like James Joyce or Hemingway. They didn't like the philosophizing or the moralizing that they thought was coming through because another thing that modernism really highly valued was just art for art's sake. And so you did not want to moralize at all. And so I have, can I read a quote from yeah. Steinbeck? This is from his Nobel laureate speech. He says, uh, literature is as old as speech. It grew out of human need for it and has not changed except to become more needed. The scalds, the bards, the writers are not separate and exclusive from the beginning, their functions, their duties, their responsibilities have been decreed by our species. So he saw himself as carrying on this tradition of, like I said, the storyteller. And he did not care at all about the criticism against his moralizing. He just didn't care. So was he thumbing his nose at the establishment of the time a little bit? Or was he just on a completely different track? I, I get the sense that he was just so committed to his literature and what he was doing and his craft that he just didn't care. I didn't, I didn't get the sense at all that it bothered him. I think it depressed him when he wrote – what was his last novel he wrote? Winter, uh, winter, winter of our, our discontent. discontent. Yeah. yeah, that crushed him when critics didn't like that, and so he didn't write another novel for the rest of his life. But this one, I didn't get. I never picked up on anybody saying that this crushed him. I think he it became so popular that another author that it might be easy to compare him to would be Stephen King. Harold Bloom hates Stephen King, but everybody else loves him because he just tells good stories yeah. that people like. He tells good stories. He writes sentences that people can understand and in a way that people can understand and stories that are moving. And that's completely against modernism. See, what's funny is in your literature classes, you get taught by English professors who were taught in universities that came out of modernism. Mm -hmm. And so obviously they're going to tell you James Joyce and these guys, they're the ones that are the victors and the winners. But, you know, are they really... I think if time is the ultimate arbiter, then East of Eden has a pretty good shot. It uh, it hit the bestseller lists in 2003 when Oprah bestowed her magical touch. And it, I was just reading about how popular, the, how many copies the book has sold just even since then. It's It's been a perennial favorite for at least, what is it, 65 years or so now? I think, well, I don't want to jump to a... I don't hear the planes yet, so I'll wait. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> wait, what's that sound? <laughs> Whatever, Jake. <laughs> you have to wait till the sound actually happens. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll pick back up on some of this when, <laughs> when we hear the uh, American Airlines over here. Whatever. American Airlines. Well, I don't know when that's going to be. I guess we have to wait for it. How are you guys doing? I'm doing fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Think how many sentences was that? Five, four? Yeah. I okay. Think something like that. Yeah. Couldn't have been more than four. Yeah. <laughs> you doing all right, Jake? A little tired. What's that sound? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, it's, it's the plane going over. You guys know what that means, right? What does it mean, Nathan? It's time for baggage check. Where we talk about what baggage we brought to this book and stuff. Are you guys excited for baggage check? I am excited. All right, so very excited. Well, Jake, I'm sure everyone's sick of hearing from Brandon, so let's let's uh, hear about some some bra baggage. Braggage. Some braggage. Not not braggage. Do please. Some braggage for us. <laughs> Drop a track. Well, let me tell you how awesome I am. <laughs> Go ahead. I 
I have to say, I, I didn't bring a lot. I came pretty empty-handed to this novel. I read Of Mice and Men, and that was a long time ago. And all I remember is... is the ending. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I have, you know, a sense of Steinbeck as dusty and dry in a sort of dust bowl-y sort of way, but that's just, it wasn't any real prejudice. I came to it, I think, pretty open-handed, pretty pretty much a clean slate, just ready to follow and hopefully be immersed in a great story. Brandon, what baggage <coughs> did you bring to East of Eden, sir? Had you read it before? I had never read East of Eden before. Neither one of you guys had read no. East of Eden before. I had read um, Grapes of Wrath and Of Mice and Men and a couple short stories. What I When I came to Grapes of Wrath, when I first read it, it was in early graduate school. And I brought the baggage of like, uh, of having been a part of the academy that looked down on um, these popularist novelists. So Dickens is despised. Steinbeck, yeah, there's, a mi- there's mixed feelings about him. You know, recently, people have been trying to prove that he was just a compromise decision for the Nobel Prize, that he shouldn't have really had it. And so that's the baggage I brought to him is that he was nowhere near the quality of craft that you would find in James Joyce or that you would find in T.S. Eliot or in um, Hemingway. I read Grapes of Wrath and it blew me away. And that changed. I realized that he was able to write novels that were just as big and expansive and beautiful as Tolstoy and those sorts of authors and that he, that it was unfair and priggish and snobbish and stupid to follow these guys who all ran to Paris because they, I don't know, didn't have the nerve to stay and do their craft in America. There was just, I don't know, we'll get to it some other time, but they were all just babies. They were all just a bunch of babies running to (laughs) Paris. The entire lost generation. Yeah, they just thought that they were so much greater than all these other people and that they had the secret to art figured out, and it's disgusting. And um, some of them created really great art, but I would say it was despite their stance towards Dickens and towards Hemingway, uh, not Hemingway, towards Steinbeck. In many ways, Steinbeck has created greater art. That, that's the baggage I brought to it. This time, those expectations had died, and I just came expecting a good story and got it. So. <gasps> Spoilers. <laughs> uh, Kathy did it. Kathy did it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I read Grapes of Wrath in high school with the world's worst high school teacher and i really liked it but it was so depressing and not cathartic and it's in its sadness in a, in a certain way it was just like oh i guess farmers in the dust bowl era life really sucked for them what am i supposed to do about that what you know what do i do with that what does that mean to me i'm not sure except for that i've been moved i don't know exactly what to do with it but I was certainly it certainly made an impression. And then sometime in late high school, I think my mom just had I it probably was around the time that Oprah recommended East of Eden, put it on her book list, and so every housewife in the world was reading it, and my mom, being a housewife, had a copy of it laying around and I was just bored one day and I picked it up and read the first chapter and liked it and then just kept going and it was it was a good reading experience because I wasn't expecting anything didn't know anything about it hadn't looked it up on wikipedia didn't had it, it hadn't been recommended to me if anything I, I had a chip on my shoulder against it simply because it was belonged to my mom and therefore must be lame you know my mom is always going to be have a copy of the help or whatever's you know, that kind of stuff. 
my mom's a wonderful woman. I'll cut this part out. But this being our non-spoiler section right now. Actually, first of all, Jake, give us a synopsis. A non-spoiler e synopsis of East of Eden. For all the people out there that are listening to our non-spoiler episode and want to know about East of Eden, what would you tell them? Let's just say I'm a guy, you meet in a coffee shop, and I'm like, say, what you reading there, mister? I'm reading East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Oh, pray tell what that's about, sir. (laughs) It follows uh, two families over multiple generations, and uh, it's uh, something of a retelling of the story of Cain and Abel is about processing your longing for acceptance and your fear of rejection, what that does to you, deals with themes of guilt and sin and longing. And I don't know what to say beyond that without getting all spoilery on you. That sounds pretty high-handed. I don't think I'd enjoy a book like that. (laughs) Well, to... Not give you a high-handed sounding uh, synopsis. I'd have to get into details of how it works out. I guess I don't know. Well, you can give me some details. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> I don't know, Nathan. Uh, I mean, random coffee shop guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's father hunger. It's mother hunger. It's uh, a set. This the central character is a guy named Adam Trask, and. He's dealing with his own baggage with his mom and his dad and his brother throughout his life, and he ends up recreating baggage for his own kids in the process. And so the Trask family is really the the, the family that the novel's about. And you follow from Adam's father through Adam's sons, and you see Adam start out as an able figure and become an Adam figure in the process, and you see recurrences of the struggle between Cain and Abel for uh, their father's affection and the fight between brothers, the struggle between brothers and for their mother's affection, feelings of being abandoned, feelings of being rejected, feelings of being accepted or longing to be accepted. Um, In contrast to that, you have the Hamilton family, which is Steinbeck's own family. Uh, The central character there is Samuel Hamilton, and uh, he's Steinbeck's grandfather, He's a larger than life sort of character. He's uh, he's something of a of a prophet. Um, if you take Samuel Hamilton and then uh, Lee, uh, who you'll meet in the middle of the book, this sort of like a Elijah and Elisha duo, where th- their job is to come in and to speak truth and sense into the Trask family. And in the process, you get to know the Hamilton family and see how they turned out. And uh, there's a lot of interesting stories and side notes. Uh, the whole story is really told, I think, it's from John Steinbeck's own perspective. It's from the perspective of, but as an old man, he's telling the story of his own family. He's telling the story of this other family. And you kind of get to see his place in it as the as the novel unfolds. And I, I didn't realize any of that, actually, when I came to it. So it was a surprise to me that he put himself into uh, the story as a as a storyteller um, as the storyteller that Brandon was talking about earlier. and Yeah, I read um, somewhere that he actually wrote the book because he wanted his two sons or nephews or something like that to know his family history. Yeah, it was to his two sons. His two sons. Yeah. So it started out as a work of family history. There's a very, I think it crosses into total fiction at some point, but he did have a grandfather yeah, the, named the, Samuel Hamilton. I don't know if there were any Trasks. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think there were. Um, the Hamiltons, I don't even know if... 
a large part of their history is true. Or well, not. I know his mother. He talks about his mother, whose name was Olive, who was mm-hmm. married to Ernest Steinbeck, both of whom are name dropped and told stories about in the book. Uh, I guess we should set the scene a little and bit. And they seem to be. I, I looked a little bit yesterday afternoon at Steinbeck's bio, and they seem to be. His uh, mother and father seem to be p- pretty true to the way that he characterizes them, at least mm-hmm. in the book. I wonder if she really flew in an airplane. Was, I bet she did. That was random. <laughs> I, I wanted yeah. to look that up, but I, I bet she did. Yeah, it seemed very real. Yeah. So. Yeah, you don't make something like that up, I wouldn't think. That was Liza, wasn't it? No. No, it was his mother. Was Olive. it Olive? Yeah. No. Man, it was like four I forgot all. Of, I forgot that, all about that whole story. Yeah. yeah. I just, well, that's random. one of the just, great things about the book is it has yeah. all of these random little tidbits and stories. Yeah, you have little inlets and it's... The main the main narrative keeps flowing, but you yeah, and that's that in gets into and... what you were saying before about it. You know, the beauty of it being, you know, a, a storyteller in a storyteller sort of tradition, whereas everybody that has been critical of its winding, it not being concise, it just isn't content with sitting down by the fire and letting grandfather weave a really great story over a couple of nights yeah. yeah i think that's a good analogy for what it is and it's kind of like you asked your grandpa john like can you tell me the story about adam trask and then he's like well way back in 1863 the civil war began and you're like oh crap oh, no. <laughs> and so you have he ends up telling his entire family history and you know maybe there's some parts where you're like and the same the, the same story about stories, Adam Trask. Yeah. you know but uh grandpa you've told that story about aunt olive about five million times right, but thanks for, thanks absolutely for... nothing to do with what i asked <laughs> um but I think that's great. I think it's one of the best features. The novel, the primary criticism, I think, perhaps, of the novel at the time, um, the the ones that I saw were, like what Brandon was mentioning, a lack of unity. The the I think Kathy, the character of Kathy, who yep. we'll get into more in our spoiler section, it was a big sticking point for a lot of people. And she was unrealistic. And still is. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the lack of unity. I could not personally care less about the supposed lack of unity. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, I think if you're willing to listen to the story be told to you, the narrator is a, is somebody that you trust and want to have tell you the story. And that's something that these critics, I don't think, like like you were saying, Jack, I don't think they wanted to see that or understand that. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to sit and listen to Steinbeck, who's a good storyteller. And this narrator that he's partly created so, I mean, there's a little bit of, like, the unreliable narration going on. In fact, are we in the book yet? Or do I need to wait? Do what? Just read the first part of Chapter 2. Oh, no, go ahead. Which was uh, eye-opening. It must, yeah, it, I must depend on hearsay, on old photographs, on stories told, and on memories which are hazy and mixed with fable and trying to tell you about the Hamiltons, right? And so he's admitting right there that this this book is hearsay. It may or may not be the actual facts, but, but he's going to tell you a good, yeah. a good version of the story. But it's a good story to listen to. Right. Yeah. And the truth that comes out of it, the wisdom that comes out of it, is still worth hearing. Uh, I don't think we've actually set the scene for someone who's a total East of Eden neophyte. We should say Cyrus Trask, Adam's father, the main figure. His father fought in the Civil War, I believe, or maybe didn't fight in the Civil War. He did something in the Civil War, yeah. Right. So this, the yeah, book he begins, was in one skirmish or something right. like Eventually that. became so knowledgeable that he was like... <laughs> Four places at once, isn't right. that what it says? <laughs> he's, he's an interesting character. But it, it, the book, I, I just want to point out the time period that the book is set in. It's it's just like pure Americana, kind of. It starts Civil War. Adam 
comes into his own as as the 20th century begins. His sons are born, I think, in 1900. Yeah, I think uh, that's And they become about the right. main characters, and then they live through World War Two. So it's, it's one world. Sorry, World War One, because that was also an important war that we fought. Spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's set there. I don't know if there's anything else we want to say before we uh, get into spoilers. It's a great book. You should read it. Yep. And then you should listen to us spoil it for you and talk about the spoilery stuff. If you haven't read it yet, it's the kind of book that you want to read uh, to process your own family, your life growing up as a young man or a young woman, your hunger for the acceptance of your mother and father, the sibling rivalries you may have dealt with. Right. Well, and I do want to say for people who haven't read it, you've made it sound very profound, which it is, but it's also just like like the other thing we've been saying. It's it's just a good story. It's got fathers and sons and murders and plot twists and yeah. you know, it's just it's in, the, in the Dickensian it's tradition. It's it's entertaining. The story's always going somewhere, and there's there's some good, colorful villains. Yeah, you don't realize that something could even be seen as out of place until you're out of that part of the story. It's just that engaging. Everything. You want to see what happens with every story he brings up. Yeah. And some of the stories are fun or interesting or funny, and some of them are sort of painful as they unfold, because it, more or less, depending on how much you see yourself in the characters... That are involved. Which, like we were saying in the Austin um, podcasts, you'll see yourself in quite a few of these characters. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Read it. Read East of Eden by John Steinbeck. And then listen to the rest of these amazing podcasts. Yeah, I guess this one's a lot longer than Pride and Prejudice. Just don't be intimidated by the size of a novel. It reads fast. It does, yeah. It doesn't have a bunch of boring stuff. I finished it last night, spoiler, <laughs> and and uh, or yesterday evening, and I, I managed to read, I think, about 350 pages in two days, yeah. and it, it didn't feel, I mean, it wasn't, I was still getting all kinds of other stuff done. It was just If you've reading. read Dickens or easy if you've reading. read Stephen King even, it's, it's that kind of a story. It just draws you along, and, you know, you're not going to have to look up a bunch of words in the dictionary. Yeah, the prose reads well. I know I likened it to Moby Dick, but it's different in narrative style, and it's not as dense. Right. It's not you don't have weird asides like that where right. you suddenly are talking about whale. There's not bone a structure. giant <laughs> chapter on whale blubber. I really think it was missing that. <laughs> That's what it was missing. I kept waiting. For I mean, you do have some strange asides where he'll start talking about history, or he'll start talking about the Salinas Valley. Right. So there is a little bit of that. But, but it's all stuff that John um, Steinbeck lived and knew and yeah. talks well about. He can be a little purple in his prose sometimes, mm-hmm. which I'm sure we'll talk about more. But I think he's talking. He has some real wisdom to offer yeah. about a particular time in American history. If you're interested in World War One, if you're interested in California, if you're interested in America at that time, I think if you'll you're get interested some good stuff. in uh, I was talking to a Chinese American friend just the other day about Lee and the development of Lee's character and um in the context of having listened to a really great podcast uh, episode by 99% Invisible on the development of Chinatown in San Francisco. Mm, if you, it, did you hear that yeah, one? it was good. It was good. And so if you're interested even in, in that aspect of uh, Chinese um, in America on the West Coast, California, San Francisco area, uh, what it was like being a first-generation 
Chinese American. That's another really interesting historical thing going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should also mention, I think people might be interested to know, a large part of the book is about a character named Kathy, who's one of the most interesting villains you'll encounter in 20th century <laughs> literature. Uh, people have different feelings about whether she's a successful character or not, and we'll talk a lot about that in our spoiler section, I'm sure. But she's a character that's well worth reading and certainly unforgettable. And if you like uh, to ponder the nature of evil and all that stuff, then this book has that too. It's just got everything. And also the nature of uh, free will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The narrator straight up calls her a monster. Right. Her introduction is she was a monster. And that's not a spoiler because Steinbeck spoils it for you. Like in the fourth chapter. (laughs) Fourth chapter. (laughs) So she is a pure monster. Or is she? Uh, But... We'll get into that, and you'll just have to read it and then come back and listen to our spoiler section. In in Steinbeck's introduction, he says all this weird stuff about a box. (laughs) But then, okay, I'm just going to read the introduction. He's talking to his editor, Pascal Kovinsky, and he says, Dear Pat, you came upon me carving some kind of little figure out of wood, and you said, Why don't you make something for me? I asked you what you wanted, and you said, A box. What for? To put things in. What things? Whatever you have, you said. Well, here's your box. Nearly everything I have is in it, and it is not full. Pain and excitement are in it, and feeling, good or bad, and evil thoughts and good thoughts, the pleasure of design and some despair and the indescribable joy of creation. So that's how Steinbeck characterized it himself, and I don't think he's wrong. It's a big book. It's full of a lot of different things, and it's very entertaining. Do you think, would you recommend East of Eden? Absolutely. The first thing I did when I finished it was uh, get on Amazon and buy a copy for my brother and send it to him. That's such a thing. Yeah. If you've read East of Eden, you know that that's a fascinating thing <laughs> for Dave to have done. Did you mail a hatchet to him as well? <laughs> the Booketing Today was written and produced by me, Nathan Albertson. It was performed by Nathan Albertson, Brandon Chastine, and Jacob Menzel. You can go to www.warhornmedia.com for more amazing content like this. And you can follow me on Twitter at NotFamousNathan. You can follow Jake at Jacob Menzel. Pretty straightforward. 